You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Brendan, give us an update on where you are in Europe right now. Where in the world yeah, so is Brendan Patrick? I'm currently in Berlin, um, which I was talking to you about earlier. It's probably my favorite city, which I didn't expect at all. Berlin was something that just got added on to my trip, almost out of like logistics, because I had to go to Hamburg here on the 15th and 16th. Um, and I think it's my favorite city in Europe by far, and it's not particularly close. It's not crowded, very clean, amazing history, great infrastructure, great food, very nice people, very liberal city, very open-minded. And yeah, I mean, it's just not what I expected. I had a friend here, um, his Pascal. He took us out, great guy. And yeah, he's been living in Berlin his entire life and he's kind of echoed the same thing. So I think if you're looking for a place to like a home base in Europe, man, Berlin just really checks all the boxes. I was I'm very impressed with Germany so far. Well, that is Brendan's travel review guide. Tune in next week for more. <laughs> uh, you'll notice we're back on video this week. And of course... Welcome back to Arsenal Pass, episode 75. I've returned home in the uh, in the studio, Brendan. You're in the makeshift studio in Berlin there, still traveling for another couple of weeks. And um, this week, we're going to be taking a bit of a dive into week one of, of Nationals, uh, of course. This is kind of the post-PRISM meta, right? Like, what is the, the shackles of the light illusions have been released, and we've, we're starting to see some things happen with this meta. Of course, we had... Columbus uh, battle hardened, but now we've had eight events or nine national championships, actually eight class constructed national championships this week. And it's time to ask the question, Brendan, is this the first time we're going to see a control dominated meta in flesh and blood? So we'll get so, into that. <laughs> yeah, well, I can quickly answer it by saying yes and no, because oh, Welcome to Wraith was definitely a control meta. <laughs> Just not everybody else else had caught up quite yet when uh, Ninja Drone was burst onto the scene, as they say. Uh, just had to check that box off. So, you know, Taylor Morrow, if you're listening, go ahead and drink. Yep, yep. Well, we also had the dash meta, right, in uh, Crucible of War, which was pretty heavily... I guess the, the dash in that meta really moved towards more of a mid-range meta, but a uh, mid-range version of the deck. But, you know, it was it was pretty controlling for a, for a long section of that meta. But realistically, anything before... Monarch really did it kind of exist? I don't know, hard to say. Anyway, Brendan, before we get into that, want to ask, what's your week of Flesh and Blood been like? Yeah, so I'm playing a lot of Flesh and Blood, playing a lot of Talishar online. Um, that is the what was formerly known as Flesh and Blood Online, so they moved over to Talishar. Just been really enjoying that program. Um, like I think I mentioned on the last podcast, I was planning to take quite a long break from Flesh and Blood after the Pro Tour, and yeah, I mean the ability to sort of jam games casually on my ipad sitting in bed completely horizontal has reignited my love for the game also been playing decks that i enjoy so playing things like wizard playing control decks you know getting around to jermai and icelander decks that i honestly had pretty much no prep and uh, reps with going into the pro tour so i've actually had a lot of fun doing that and it's been a cool experience i played against some really good players played against a lot of people that um new of the podcast recognized me off my username on there i am just brendan so if you play against me definitely say <laughs> hi but yeah great experience a uh, huge upgrade to tabletop simulator which i personally was uh, not a fan of yeah yeah i mean it's a very different sort of um piece i mean 
yeah, for me, I've just returned, so yet to really get into uh, any of, of Talishar. And funnily enough, I mean, I feel like, Brendan, when we left or when we were kind of in, even before actually, even before Lille, like the kind of lead up and testing and the conversation we we're having with each other around where our heads are at with the game, I feel like in the past couple of weeks, we've flipped a little bit. I feel like we've swapped <laughs> uh, roles a little bit because I've definitely come back from... Singapore, Lille, Nationals, it's been a full-on sort of like three, three and a half weeks, four weeks almost of of just flesh and blood and um, actually three weekends in a row, right, uh, of flesh and blood. So uh, I'm starting to feel like a little bit exhausted from that and I'm looking forward to just taking the rest of this week off, apart from the content side, of course, just reassessing where I am at with flesh and blood and a big part of that actually stems from, unfortunately, my Nationals experience, uh, <laughs> nothing to do with the I guess the performance at the event or um, the games themselves necessarily, but I, you know I think suffice to say it was a big downgrade on the 2021 nationals. What I experienced this year in 2022 in Australia, unfortunately, and I know there's some listeners of the pod who who were there. I talked to them actually, um, and if I guess you haven't seen, if you're not in the, the Twitterverse of Flesh and Blood. Uh, Basically, the Australian Nationals was uh, a bit tight, let's say, in terms of play space and things like that. An organisation maybe wasn't up to uh, the standard it, it might need to be. So um, that's unfortunate. Uh, I don't know if I've kind of gone off script here a little bit, Brendan. Just want to talk a little bit about the Nationals, but I don't know if necessarily um, that's all down to you know specific people or whatnot. But it's probably probably enough of my experience in terms of what i have been playing yeah i did i did play my nationals uh what has my week in flesh and blood been like i finished 14th at nationals so uh i went into i had a really bad start brendan i started at one two in my nationals i really really got in that submarine bracket early uh three rounds of cc to start nationals won the first round actually brendan i had a feature match on camera won that round feeling real good dropped uh two briar mirrors after that in quick succession and then went into drafts had the most busted Icelander deck I've ever had. I don't know if I sent you a picture of this, Brendan. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. I was Sasha actually reviewing it last night, and we're like, he, uh, you went, you went two one, right? We're like, he two one with this, and then three would with that freaking pile of five cards. <laughs> Uprising draft, man. It's it's so tough. Like my, I was the only Icelander in my first draft, and I felt so like I really read the draft correctly and positioned myself and had this amazing Icelander deck, and I get to the final of the draft, and it's like. Turn one, um, you know, I, I even I even won the dice roll. I put my opponent on the play. Mm. Turn one, my opponent managed to leak some damage because I draw like a, like my two blocks in my deck. I actually draw two of the three of them. And then on my first turn, I just like, all right, one of my eight, either, eight the ice veins in my hand, no ice card. And then the same thing next turn. I'm just like, ah, oh, man. You know, and then that game's over because it's it's uprising draft, right? Three turns and the game's over. So, yep. you know, uh, unfortunately, it's just kind of the feels. And then, yeah, managed to 3-0 the next pod with, uh, I would say a pretty subpar deck um but i had some really actually had great games in that second draft like really tight all three of my rounds or especially my first two rounds were super super tight um and really good games which was which was fun i had a lot of fun actually playing that draft probably even though my I've, i often find in this format i have fun with like subpar decks into subpar decks so if a draft is like a train wreck for the whole table i often find that more fun <laughs> because often you find the games are, power levels a bit lower games are closer um yeah I find with Icelander, the that's it, I think Icelander is like super powerful in uprising draft, but I, it, I do find it particularly irritating playing that hero when, like sometimes even if there's two, there's like three fives at the table, <clears throat> particularly if you lose a dice roll, you can just absolutely get run over in two or three turns, and there's like 
nothing you can do. And then once you're at a low enough live total, like Icelander, it feels it has a very hard time pivoting out of that sort of uh, that lock you get put in as they just pound you turn after turn. So I've had some Icelander decks myself that I was like, wow, this is this is a three zero deck right here. And I've won two with them because you know lost a dice roll twice against some fives and yeah. just got absolutely obliterated. <laughs> Uh, I was pretty, I was pretty disappointed. I think it's pretty safe to say. But um, so I went into day two. I was at X and three. So I literally I had three. So what's that? Six and three. Had three more rounds on day two. Could not drop a round. Mm-hmm. Needed three out of top eight. Uh, rocking on day day two. First round is against uh, Sydney local Ryan, who a uh, very good young player on Dorinthia, which I have not played a game against Dorinthia in a, a long time. Like pr- definitely in at least probably the past year. Um, and uh, I lost that. It was a very, very tough match. It was a very interesting deck. It was a, a deck that we saw actually at the PT played by, I think, the highest finishing Australian, uh, John Wardan Flukenbox, was playing this, like, Helm of the Sharp Eye deck, um, mm-hmm. which I think was built by Australian top eight national player Phil Mackay. And it's just like, I just didn't really know what the deck was doing. <laughs> and until I kind of, like, worked it out on about turn three, it was, like, almost a little bit too late. I'd given him some counters that... Uh, against normal Dorinthia I don't really care about giving them counters you just get rid of them but this deck was like super tall and really hard to stop them once they were at game momentum so uh, then won out the last two rounds and finished uh, 14th some cash but uh, but no top 8 unfortunately really interesting top 8 in Australia actually 4 wizards in the top 8 which was uh, pretty cool to see though including yeah. 1k no. that Dorinthia deck I've had the pleasure of playing against online a few times it's pretty cool it's good to see Dorinthia coming back into the meta um, and it's funny to see it come back in the meta because as we probably, probably uh, we probably beat the dead horse here, but Dorinthia in the past was just the absolute terror of flesh and blood. It was the deck to beat, the most annoying deck you could play against, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People hated it. And now it's finally making its way back now that Prism has come out. I think it has a harder time than it used to, but still a cool deck to see come back in the meta because it really puts the impetus on the opponent to yep. sort of know what that deck is trying to do and to play effectively around it. I think you can play a lot of really fun games against and with Dorinthia because there's a lot of mind games going on. It's very much a bluff-heavy deck in my opinion i much prefer being on the side of playing against it i find those enjoyable i don't necessarily enjoy playing with the hero but, you, yeah. <laughs> but it's so funny I, so i actually ended up playing two dorinthias the next round after i lost that i played another dorinthia and i was talking to my opponent after the game and he was like yeah i just want to play a deck that you know my opponents had to make decisions and he's like i've sat down for multiple rounds this weekend and my opponents have gone oh dorinthia i haven't played against this before <laughs> and his eyes just yeah. light up you know it's like yeah, it's gonna be a tough game for you, but if you uh, if you don't really know what you're meant to be playing around here, you can get blown out by something at some point in the game, which is um, it's pretty funny. So, yeah, that's my weekend back in Sydney. Now, I, as soon as nationals finished, I went to the airport, changed my flight to the first flight out, so I could get home and sleep in my own bed on the Sunday night, which was I gotta say, fantastic, Brendan. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Yeah, you'll uh, get there soon. Yeah, I'll get there soon. Yeah. Um. Anyway, Brendan, should we jump in and talk about the news this week? Let's go for it. There's actually a lot of news on the books, so a bunch of stuff just kind of randomly dropped, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's. I mean, I guess the, the first thing I want to shout out is obviously week one of Nationals in the books. Congratulations to all of the winners around the world. A lot of events predominantly in Europe this weekend. Uh, actually, that, that's a lie. I think there were three events in, um, I guess, in the Southern Hemisphere because we had Malaysia, Vietnam and Australia, so no, I, I lie. It's, you know, it's about representative. Um, but congrats to all those winners. Want to give a big uh, congratulations and shout out to uh, my teammate from the Sydney Calling, Nick Butcher, who ended up taking out the Australian Nationals. Uh, was kind of like talking to him through the event, 
was on a tear. I think he started like 8-0 or 9-0 and then dropped a few few games, but still easily made top eight and kind of kind of had a good run there. So um, the one that we talked about last week, Brendan, was this hashtag Flesh and Blood to Brazil. And LSS did drop the announcement that Flesh and Blood in October is going to be headed to Brazil, firstly only in English. Uh, but there is events happening in Rio de Janeiro and in Sao Paulo for I guess, a, what is a launch of Flesh and Blood in Brazil? Uh, fans eagerly awaiting it. So that, that's very cool. It's cool to see new markets still being expanded into, you know, third year of, of the game. And, and there's so many more markets to go into. And that's before we even, it really feels like Portuguese is coming, right, at some point um, in, in the history cycle, the history pack cycle, as we get to, I guess, second cycle. And uh, I guess it's going to be mid next year, right? Yeah, um, which is cool. Like, I think that, that obviously it's a huge market, right? So definitely... Uh, Definitely good news and probably going to be a win. Um, I think expanding over to that region, I think they'll take to it pretty well. Obviously, a very um, historically quite an involved region yeah. in terms of other TCGs like Magic the Gathering. So excited to see where it takes us in terms of you know more competitive players entering the scene. Definitely, I mean not not only Brazil, of course, but <clears throat> Argentina, Chile, uh, you know, so many countries around in South America that, yeah, like you say, traditionally have had footholds in TCGs. So, really excited to see more and more players get on the bandwagon of Flesh and Blood. Um, actually, really cool seeing in Lille, you know, some players that I recognise from Magic European Magic scene uh, at that event. Mm-hmm. I know uh, Marin Lebier was there playing in the calling, uh, one of Magic players. A few other faces I spotted, which is um, which is very cool. So, next up, South America, right? Uh, yeah. Living Legend changes, Brendan. I actually, <laughs> I kind of missed this one during my travels back, and I think it was kind of the morning of my nationals that this dropped. But there has been changes to the Living Legend system. You know, obviously something that we talked a lot about last week in the mailbag. I think we had like three or four questions about Living Legend and the system in the mailbag episode last week, and we, we kind of addressed our kind of thoughts. So I don't think we need to rehash it, but um, maybe just a, a quick couple of words, Brendan, on the fact that we're seeing some changes and, and what that maybe means for Living Legend over at least, I guess, this period of time heading into Worlds and maybe into, I guess, Dynasty and, uh, say, PT1 next year. Yeah, I would be uh, be interested to, to hear anybody that disagrees with my opinion and sentiment that Living Legend is literally just made up as we go. Uh, I think that these changes kind of show that, right? And I think that these changes are actually not permanent and it will be changed again. We see sort of this interesting approach to the numerical and quantitative system of Living Legend where they've just moved the static variables to different numbers, right? But Flesh and Blood is a game that will still continue to dynamically scale in the future as we expand to more regions, as there's more events, or maybe as there's less, right? Let's say the participation of Flesh and Blood does go down. These numbers still break again. I know we've talked this into the ground, but yeah. Um, in terms of like our sentiments, like are you happy or disappointed? I would say mostly indifferent. But at the same time, I would kind of push this idea narrative that I have that, yeah, Living Legend is not like an ingenious system. It's not a system that is particularly well-designed, right? It's more of just a make it up as we go. Um, I think that Living Legend, although recently with the Living Legend of Prism in particular, and maybe Briar here relatively soon, although this these mm-hmm. changes do kind of change a lot for the world's meta, uh, particularly... It, it has resulted in a good change to Flesh and Blood. So I think that Living Legend has had a very a recent positive effect. But I think overall, in terms of its design, yeah, these like frequent changes that we see um, and the way they've changed it does seem like they've kind of just made it up as they went and they haven't really put a lot of thought into sort of the permanence of these changes and creating a system that will scale into the future. And Hayden, I know you have some ideas about how they could particularly, you know, implement some things that would actually scale. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I've talked, forward. Yeah, I've talked about those. I talked about them last week, which is really this idea of a basically a set number of points that uh, I guess are distributed per season and effectively distributing that based on, on win percentage through the season I think is a pretty easy and clean system that requires a little maintenance from Legend Story Studios. I, I think when you say, you know, like make it up as, as they go along, I don't, to be honest, I don't disagree, but I do think that it, that can be okay. I think if, if that's the approach Alice wants to take in the interim of, you know, still working this out. And, and and James White said that, I think, in not this update, but the previous update to Living Legend, that it was, you know, it was an, it was something that was going to evolve uh, at some points. And we've seen that again. So just maybe a bit of a, an update on that. Yeah, so Living Legend points have decreased for certain events, so Nationals in particular, which is going to... Um, actually, it's funny, they didn't do a side-by-side table on this, so I, had to, I was trying to look through Facebook because I know someone did it on, like, one of the fan pages, but I couldn't find it, unfortunately. So... Um, so I don't know exactly what the decrease is uh, and I just haven't had time to, to go and research enough. To be honest, I actually didn't know about this and didn't really under- know the full extent until basically today. Um, but yeah, it does mean effectively we're going to see Heroes Living Legend a little bit slower than we have previously. And Alice has talked about the life cycle in this article that's up on FabTG, which you can go and, go and check out, which is, you know, what is the lifespan of certain heroes based on win percentage and things like that um, and how many months would something would take to Living Legend. And basically these changes mean that that the highest performing heroes, all heroes, are going to Living Legend at a slightly slower rate than what we've seen. And that feels, to what Alice is saying, more in line with how they see it, especially with more events being added, of course, more nationals than we saw last year, more ProQuest events, uh, more road to nationals, more callings potentially. Um, so, you know, seems to seems to make sense. Um, in terms of what that means for like the next six months, Brendan, the interesting one to me is that Briar may very well be around at... Yep. World Championships, uh, previously leaving Lille, it would have been thought, well, you know, Briar feels like chain here. It's going to live in Legion in this national season like it did in ProQuest season post New Jersey. Um, but actually, the Living Legion changes might not be, you know, that's not the biggest factor right here. It's uh, actually the shift in the meta, which we're going to get into very soon, is that Briar may not live in Legend uh, after all. So, yeah, very interesting to see. But you can go and check this article on uh, fabtg.com and, and read a bit more into this. It's, um, it is definitely interesting. Otherwise, Brendan. Yep. I would say, well, I just want to, yeah, you kind of said there with the bit, I think the big TLDR there, if you're playing uh, with the World Championships, is not, of course, Briar is most likely to be there, but more importantly, Rosetta Thorn will likely Rosetta be Thorn, legal yeah. at World Championships, which kind of keeps both Visry and Briar at very, yeah, a very <laughs> powerful level, which, like, I think if Briar had rotated, Briar and Rosetta had rotated, um, we would have seen a maybe particularly control heavy. Um, world championship format where right now i think that you know control is viable uh more viable than it was but at the same time i still think that briar might be the most powerful deck to be honest all right well we'll we'll get into i guess uh breaking it down because i think we're gonna have some very good discussion based on what we've seen so far in this new meta this prismless meta um want to jump on to i guess what we know about dynasty so far so we did get an official i guess um so there's a law piece and official guess like release uh, fact sheet for Dynasty. So we do know the release date is going to be November 11th. Um, the card preview starts on November 1st. So the week before, the week of actually Worlds, which will be super interesting to see. No doubt we'll see some some great things happening at Worlds in relation to Dynasty. Uh, we know about the, the you know pack configuration. Of course, it is a supplemental or uh, now um, 10 card 
packs, so 24 per display, etc., etc. Uh, does contain cold foils. This really, I guess, interesting idea of that uh, we're going to see legendaries at this Marvel sort of rarity. We've seen that with Crown of Dominion. Um, looks really cool, <laughs> to be honest. I like this like this idea. So uh, no doubt we'll get more and more details as we get closer. But yeah, card preview season does start November 1st. And there's a few different things out there as well, like um, the hero page for the Emperor and uh, a hero story as well for that, which you can go check out now on fabtcg.com. Um, Brendan, we did a bit of a, a video log for Lil and actually when I was in Singapore, I did this as well, which has gone up on our YouTube page on Arsenal Pass. Um, we've also got a bunch of videos coming in the next two weeks. We've got some great deck techs. We've got one on the Briar uh, deck that we all played at Lille. Uh, we've also got one with Michael Hamilton. Um, so you're going to see some deck techs going up. Of course, we've got this vlog that's gone up. Unfortunately, we lost a bit of like footage for that. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that you didn't get to see, including some romantic moments between uh, Brendan and Sasha, uh, which unfortunately were lost. Yeah, still available on OnlyFans if you want to check us out there. OnlyFans.com slash optional pass. Oh my goodness. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we did unfortunately loot like uh, the footage Hayden is talking about in particular was actually like a sort of behind the scenes like yeah. during the testing process, like breakdown of like what we were doing, where we were in the process and taking like taking you through step by step. So unfortunately we lost that, but we'll be sure to get it next time. I did have the chance to watch the video and I do think it is freaking hilarious. <laughs> Some of the editing is pretty good yeah we, we have a great editor shout out to dave but um yeah i really gutted that we did lose some of that because that was some of the best footage i think and some of the stuff that i know people really wanted to see so we i salvaged as much as what well, i didn't uh edit to salvage as much as he could in terms of the visual it was actually the audio that got corrupted so mm. we did keep as much as we could and we did some stuff like we went and drafted with uh michael feng and yuanji and, and some of those guys and um we you know we, we had some stuff there that we unfortunately lost as well so yeah, uh, we will make sure to do better next time, though. So check that out. And actually, go and check it out and give us your feedback as well. Let us know what you want to see as we head to World Championship. No doubt we'll, we'll have the ability to do more stuff uh, there and then. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you get to... I think my favorite part is the initial interview of me, you, and Sasha uh, immediately post-day <laughs> one, where you guys are both on top of the moon doing very well, and I have just been absolutely pounded <laughs> not live for anything it's just like you see just the the inner death going on during that interview uh you did well you kept a you kept a brave face on brendan we're proud of you and dante delfico makes an appearance he's he a lot does the dante delfico people will be excited to know a little interview with him uh lastly just want to give a quick shout out to all the patrons uh we do have two patreon pods going up this month as well as some other content and stuff actually we're going to talk some data in a minute and that data is going to be available with this episode up on patreon to check out as well um if you you know if you do want to become a patreon you can go to patreon.com forward slash arsenal pass and, and uh, join up there for all the extra content we do deck techs that go up we've got one with michael hamilton this week there will be a full cyborg guide and things like that for his Alton deck uh, as well as for our briar deck coming up so yeah brendan do have a commander cookout question this week we are back to the grill you know i'm back in I'm back in sydney it's spring it's almost summer it's to be honest still cold i got a bit of shock when i got back to australia after being in europe in the sunny europe um but a question this week comes from Dalston die off of our uh, arsenal pass discord What's it going to take for my boy Katsu to be tier one? Is what Dowson Dai asks. Mm, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that so with Katsu, we've thought, we've kind of talked about it over the few expansions that this has been happening. But I feel like um, Katsu has ended up giving getting a lot of side grades rather than upgrades, right? Like yeah. I think that the overall power level of Flesh and Blood has somewhat risen um not in the like really power creepy kind of way but some of these heroes particularly the rune blades just like 
they tend to go very, very fast, right? And the control decks have been ultra efficient, things like Old Him with Crown of Seeds and obviously Old Him's ability. Um, and I think that those have made Katsu just have put Katsu in a worse place. And while at the same time, the cards that have come into Katsu's card pool have been more other combo lines that you're able to play rather than this is like, this is a strict upgrade. Katsu is immediately, um, you know, more powerful because of that. That being said, I do think that things like Mask of the Pouncing Lynx are powerful in Katsu. And <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised to see, a, potentially see a resurgence of the old kind of Katsu control deck. Uh, so Katsu controlled what, like the sort of theory behind that deck and i would say the the main theory was based in treasure vitality that is gone but we did see the deck have success after that that ca that card was removed and the sort of the the theory behind that deck is that it's a ninja deck right uh that can do well into guardians right can sort of have this attrition based game plan with the kadachis to sort of get past the guardians maybe that's not possible anymore with things like rampire of the ram's head and crown of seeds but that's the idea, while at the same time being very good against go-wide decks because of cards like Flick Flack. Like, Flick Flack is still one of the most powerful defense reactions in the game, if not the most powerful defense reaction. Um, and that maybe combined with something like Wax On um, and some of these other new cards could make it a viable deck. But that being said, you know, it's got to now get past things like Wizard, which I can't imagine is a very good matchup, and still things like Briar, like these Runeblade decks. Yeah, I guess my short answer would be um, a, a talented Katsu <laughs> would maybe make, make Katsu tier one, you know, a bit of an upgrade. Uh, the other one, actually, to, to be honest, you kind of talked about it already, but is like Rampart of the Ram's Head is the most annoying card for any mm. form of Katsu, be it an aggro build, be it a control build, to be honest. Um, I mean, most mostly the, the control build, but it's it's an ultimate. It's like Crown of Seeds plus Rampart blanks both your Kadachis, right? Like that is that is massive when you're trying to play a deck that's so focused around Mask of Momentum um, or even Pouncing Links with things like Salt the Wound, right? But that's that's the biggest challenge, to be honest. So Living Legend for Ultim could, could help Katsu mostly because I think then you have a viable Kadachi strategy and then you also have this potential, uh, maybe just a, the best control deck in the format after that. Maybe, you know, you've got the defense reactions like you talk about. Um, the other thing I think would be like, so... Katsu, I think, needs to lean on its like strengths, right? Which is like mask of momentum and this ability to, I guess, Lord of Wing combo. Although that, as we go through the game, that Lord of Wing combo feels weaker and weaker, right? In terms of like just where it stands. Yeah. So, I don't know if it's like a if it's like things being removed from the format is what helps Katsu. Uh, I, I actually at this point, like addition wise, I feel like it needs it needs like a very different direction. You know, it needs something like it could even be a piece of like a chess piece, right? And you could talk about, well, you know, with the arm piece, Shuko, like is there ways to build around that potentially, but it just doesn't feel strong enough, right? So it feels like now you're just b behind five when you're trying to play that aggro build and as a control deck, it doesn't feel viable. So it feels like, you know, could there be this mid-range kind of combo -y build that comes back into Vogue? Maybe, but I think the, the game has to feel very different for that. So honestly, my answer right now is going to be a talented Katsu is probably the yeah. way that we see that become tier one. A talented Katsu, or there could be some cards that come in Dynasty, right? Like, the thing about watch. Katsu... Yeah, the thing about Katsu is, like, if you... I don't think that Katsu is going to out-damage Fi. Um, nice. And I think because of that, it probably needs more cards like Whelming Gust Wave to draw mm -hmm. more cards and punish the opponent for not being able to block. But at the same time, does that really solve its Guardian matchup, or its old hit matchup in particular, because of things like Rampart, the Rampounds, and Crown Seeds. So what used to be a favorable matchup for Katsu is now seems to be pretty bad um so i think kazu needs more just like very punishing on hit triggers mm -hmm. uh raw damage i just don't see it sort of outpacing fi at this point 
No, I agree. I think it's got to be on hit effects or better, more efficient ways to push on hit effects. So maybe a combination of both. Oldham to leave the format and uh, Rosetta Thorn to leave the format. And then maybe it does a better yeah. job of being a rune blade. <laughs> there you yeah, go. exactly. All right. Thank you for the question. If you do want to get your questions in for the Commander Cookout, you can do that whatever way you like. Ask, uh, email us at arsenalpathfab at gmail.com, YouTube. Uh, drop them in the comments on YouTube below. Put them in our Discord if you're part of the uh, Flesh and Blood Patreon Discord. DM us on Twitter. Whatever you want to do, uh, get them in. All right, Brendan. Time to move to the main topic of the show. And the question is, Flesh and Blood's first control meta? Well, <laughs> today we're going to dive into some of the results, numbers, and what we know post-week one of the 2022 Flesh and Blood National Championship season. Um, how much has the meta shifted with the Living Legion of Prism? And what has Uprising really given us now that the light illusionist shackles are off? So... I want to get into some data. I pulled I pulled from the nine events we had over the weekend, actually, so eight of which were uh, class constructed. One of them was Blitz in the uh, Vietnamese Championship. Um, so I've pulled these together, and I just want to give you some some stats, Brendan, and to talk a little bit about the decks that were kind of showing up over this event. So we don't have total metadata, which is really interesting. And the other thing I do want to point out before we get into talking about some data and stuff, because I, I think it's really important, Brendan, is that, first of all, this is top eight only, so you know this is conversion. But when you talk about top eight only, what's really important to remember is that half of this event is draft. Half of the, you know, for, for a lot of these events, sorry, not all of them, some of them are constructed only, but for a lot of the bigger ones where you've got larger, I guess, data sets of players in these and you want to maybe take more weight of those events, a lot of them are a mixed format. So Australia in particular, uh, six rounds of CC, six rounds of draft this weekend uh, was was quite interesting, especially when I talked to some of the top eight players about what their records were. Uh, you know, there were some players in there who had 6 0 constructed there were some of them who were 3-3 constructed so um very interesting to see <laughs> including one of the icelander players very good 6-0 draft though yeah all right definitely any thoughts before we jump into to data just about i guess start of the national championship yeah. season and i think we can just kind of like zoom out from a theoretical perspective like what is it and we talked about a little bit about this last week but like what does it mean sort of fundamentally now the prism is gone from the format. Well, it really releases, it kind of breaks the shackles on decks like Oldham, um, decks like Icelander, <clears throat> even potentially decks like Kano, but I still think that Kano's going to suffer from cards like Oasis Respite and, you know, aggro decks still staying in the format. Uh, but it, it gives these decks like a better, more agency participating in these tournaments because Prism was previously somewhat of a, um, like an auto loss, right? Because they literally just couldn't interact. Um, and there was functionally just almost nothing they could do to actually try to win the game. No tech that they could even put in their deck. So they would just opt to just automatically lose this matchup in order to uh, prey out the rest of the format. So those those shackles are now gone. So these these decks, while they might not be the best decks in, in the format, uh, do have free reign to sort of try to implement their game plans, try to adjust, tweak their decks, and have a reasonable matchup into whatever else is participating, right? You might have, you might still have 60-40s outside of your favor, but they're not going to be, you know, 0% into 100, which is what Prism was. So I think it, it cracks up in the meta for a lot more uh, innovation and ingenuity, and as a result, we've seen what looks to be more of a control-focused meta, but that's that's because Prism really kept those control decks uh kept them in line right so now they're they're able to participate much more yeah I, I do also think that maybe and this is again just zooming out a little bit and this is actually a bit more fundamental of how we talk about flesh and blood but archetypes in this game i think this is really going to start to rear its head because previously we have had aggro i think is very apt for what decks like briar chain Fi, you know these these decks have been in in, in previous formats 
control, on the other hand, is not necessarily as apt a term for what we see mm-hmm. with certain decks in this game. And when you start to talk about, and I'm talking about Ultim there, but when you start to talk about decks like Dramai and Icelander, trying to put those into a, an archetypal box that maybe you are familiar with from other TCGs is really tough. So um, I think we're going to start to see some conversations around. I am honestly expecting us to start talking about uh, some, I guess, some archetypes in Flesh and Blood a bit more, a bit more narrow than we, we have in other, other games. And ha- we have previously, we've tried to just kind of port terms over. So um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I want to talk about some of this data, Brendan, and the top eights and the wins from this week. So, as I said, eight um, eight national championships over the over the weekend. Well, I guess it was yeah seven, eight. Yeah. So we had four Ultims take out the national championships. By far the the biggest winner, obviously, and I don't think really a big surprise, right? That was kind of the narrative. Mm-hmm coming into this first weekend was that you know Alton was probably the the deck to beat um we saw it Alton won Columbus right am I wrong there yep yeah yeah uh I thought Dash won Columbus actually I could be wrong did it I'm gonna go yeah, have a quick da- look. pretty sure I'm pretty sure da- I'm pretty sure Dash ended up winning in the end um just sort of had a item and permanence game plan like control based Dash right against some of these uh these other control decks that it faced in that top eight I remember being sort of a sort of an outlier and a surprise. Do you know what? I feel so removed from everything that's happened in the the past week. I'm I'm, <laughs> uh, it, yeah. I'm I'm just looking now. I know it was won uh, by. It was run by Ryan Rich on on Ultim, so he ended up beating the Dash oh. in, in the final. So Dash oh, did it was in the, the finals. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But the Ultim ended up taking it out, and there was I think the story as well was you know we had two Icelander in that Columbus top eight. We had three, uh, sorry, two Ultim as well. Uh, sorry, three Ultim, two Dramai, and the Dash. So that was the I guess the story coming out of Columbus, right? Is this whole a real shift, right? No Rune Blades in that top eight. Um, and to be honest, we're going to get into some data. It's not necessarily a big change from this week. So four Ultims taking out the national championships: one Briar, one Dramai. And uh, and one Reiner taking it out as well, um, but again, you know, I think basically no massive deviation from what we saw last week, right? You know, in Columbus the week prior, Briar does pick up, and then you know, Reiner, Reiner picks up a win, which yeah. of course I'm very happy to see. And Malaysia picking up the win. You know, Reiner is like one of the most played decks on Talashar right now, or at least it feels like it. <laughs> it's uh, people people have been waiting to play some Reiner. Um, I'm, I'm, what is like? What's your initial reaction as the sort of Reiner enthusiast that you are? Is this? Uh, are you are you coming out? Are you coming out of the? You know, coming back out of retirement? And Am I stepping out of the savage claws? lands? Yeah, exactly. So I was talking to. Uh, so there was one brute at my national championship. Ninety players. One. Uh, one right. At least one Reiner player. I think the only blue brute. I think it was No Levias at my at my nationals. Uh, talked to the the only player there, and he's a he's a brute stan, uh, Patrick. And um, he's only, literally only plays Reinar and talked to him about it. And I said, if this is the time to play Reinar, you need to, you need to, you need to show me this weekend and show me how and show me why, because I am not having a good time with Reinar right now. I think it's, I thought Reinar would end up being like quite well positioned, but honestly, I actually feel it's even worse a position because a lot of these decks like Jeremai and Icelander, they're super tough. Like, I think if you have like this proactive game plan as Reiner, yeah, you know you can you can you can just you can just win these games pretty handily a lot of the time. But if your opponent is also tested against these, I think they know how to play into this matchup, and it's actually not easy. So um, yeah, I don't know. And then Briar and and Viserant that are still running around. So and I don't even think Ultim is that easy a matchup because now people are playing really proactive Ultim decks. 
So it's um, mm. it's a tough time for Reinhardt, but you know what? The Malaysian National Championship uh, champion, she she showed us what's up. So um, I might have to go back and watch some of the stream and uh, and uh, learn some lessons, I think, because I would like to play Reinhardt right now. That would be, I mean, I always want to play Reinhardt. So if I can have the opportunity to do so, I will, I will take it. Super funny because I feel the same way about Kano. Like it's in a worse position than it was previously, um, but people are playing it more and seem to be having more success across the board. Because like nowadays, people definitely have more AB in their deck, like mm-hmm. period, yep. just on average. And Oasis Respite is a card. It's literally definitely worse for Kano. Like strictly 100% worse than it used to be. Back when you could play into freaking Chain, Briar, and Starvo, which was... They had no AB if you brought it to the Pro Tour. But still, even on higher AB, that those were easier matches than old him Oasis or Spite or, you know, freaking Jermai drops a Thamai on you as Kano. Like, you literally just lose the game immediately. <laughs> yeah. The, the interesting one, I think, is just the fact that, like, this uh, Prism is almost like a mental shift. Like, Prism has disappeared. And it's almost like this, like, oh, it's like, it's a, it is like this kind of psychological fraying of the mind of how we can play flesh and blood which is, is so mm-hmm. funny more so than the actual necessarily uh matchup impact that that prism always had on this meta which is which is cool I'm, I'm down for that it happens a lot actually in flesh and blood where there will be a change that negatively impacts a certain deck and then for some reason or another it's like people are just getting this uh like permission to play it and even though the, the change is strictly worse for that that deck it ends up doing better because more people end up getting on it and then it starts innovating more yep. and you just end up with a better deck list and people more prepared on the deck and it starts doing it starts just performing <laughs> performing well uh, which i think is exactly what's happening with kano and potentially even rhino right now yeah i think you're right i think you're right uh, maybe i have to jump back on the green man himself and uh maybe i just need to take a different approach maybe that's the, the, the lesson here uh so i want to talk about the the top eight representation so um 20 of heroes we saw on top eight this weekend ultim so the highest number of of heroes into top eight 20 percent ultim i don't think a surprise right like you said just before continuing the narrative the weekend before uh briar the second highest representation in top eight 15 percent of the the top eight meter the nationals week one and then icelander coming in third with 12 percent. i guess is that kind of what you might have expected slightly different is that the kind of to, to me that makes sense right like i think i expected briar to be the premier aggro deck i expected ultim to be the premier quote-unquote control deck and i expected icelander to be this this deck that's gained traction is like this disruptive deck that has this like combo finish into control decks yeah um i think it is what i expected right i think icelander is a bit higher than i expected because icelander in context, like with with, co- with like in context of playing that deck more and understanding it better um, and seeing it function in this meta, it makes sense. But previously, I think that I didn't see Icelander as like that powerful of a deck, right? I knew that Icelander had a very bad matchup in the Prism, but I didn't like see, didn't think like, oh, okay, Prism's out. Icelander's like one of the best decks, mm-hmm. like immediately. I think Icelander the matchup into Jermai is pretty bad, but I could be playing it wrong. But that one in particular is, I would rather play Kano versus Jermai than Isolated versus Jermai. I've been having a, a lot of trouble. But, you know, Icelander, it's a really cool deck. If you haven't played it yet, it's one actually one of my favorite decks in Flesh and Blood because if you do like the idea of agency and having sort of, um, you know, lines to play in a game, whether you're playing tempo, which I think fundamentally Iceland is mostly a tempo deck, but you're playing whether you're playing a tempo game plan, or you're playing like more of a combo setup with frost taxes and things like that. Like Icelander really has it all. And I feel like when you're playing Icelander, you're making like 90% of the decisions in a game. So it's one of my favorite decks to play. And I think that it can really adapt to whatever the opponent um, kind of slaps down in front of them. Unless of course, you know, it's like a Thamai or some 
stupid card like that. <laughs> it's a bit harder. Yeah, yeah. It's actually Icelander versus Briar is like one of my favorite matchups right now, I think, to play. And I was really hoping to play some Icelanders at Nationals, unfortunately. You know, six aggro mirrors, Brendan, not not what I was hoping to play. But um, yeah, that matchup's pretty cool. Fourth fourth most uh, representative top eight was Viscerize over the weekend. Um, you know what? I'm not surprised. Rosetta Thorn's still in the format. Uh, Viscerize, I think, is the slightly... It's not only the slightly less popular uh, Runeblade right now, although my Nationals, Viscerai was the number one most played deck. I also think Briar is just still better. Um, mm. Fifth, we have a bit of a tie. So uh, four entries total into top eights over the weekend between Dorinthia, Dash, uh, who else had at here, Fi and Dramai. Uh, interesting. And I think these these sitting in this position is like, really accentuate or really shows you what the i guess the fringe of like the meta is right now in terms of decks that are competing and doing well uh, but maybe aren't going to show up in big numbers in the form of fire dramai uh dorinthia and dash yeah the wow it's interesting because i think like the most legit decks out of those are probably dramai and fi uh, fi i'm kind of taking on the word of some other players that are um, that i respect that are on the deck but i feel like dramai is super powerful like that deck seems very good um i think that the optimal deck list has maybe not been found quite yet i've seen a couple things floating around but you know it's a lot of the same stuff we just a lot of people packing most of the dragons and playing a mostly red line deck but i've seen some introductions of some cards online that i think are particularly good that maybe haven't taken mainstream yet um and i think the ceiling under my can be can be quite high which is uh i i got i had the joy of playing some jermai <laughs> on talishar and i think i played three dorinthias in a row and that matchup is really annoying <laughs> it was Jermai, really? until you figure out yeah until you because i mean they just get counters off of your, your dragon so basically you just have to play a different game plan um with not just dropping dragons uh sort of as you you can't yeah. just play out your hand and like drop the dragons you just lose triple dragon so yeah just triple dragon <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, I think that Jermai out of those four has the the highest probability of breaking into sort of higher meta and win percentage. Um, well, you you famously said when we reviewed the three heroes for Classic Constructed that Jermai uh, was going to be the hero that would that had the highest uh, ability to make an impact on Class Constructed. Of course, you promptly ate your words as Fire just dominated the metagame for a short period of time before the Stubby Hammer is banning. <laughs> and then, of course, Icelander was the next to rise. But Dramai is on the rise. I mean, my Nationals featured Dramai. We saw, of course, two Dramai in Columbus. We saw Dramai win a National Championship this weekend. The hero is powerful. It does powerful things. It has permanency to play on the board. Um, so that's, you know, that is a thing. That is something that we're going to see. I think you... Uh, you're totally right. Jeremiah has quite a high ceiling and is quite an interesting... It, like, fixes a lot of the issues I have with Illusionist in the form of the Light Illusionist and Prism. Um, but also a little bit of a difference in the game, right? Requires these resources in the form of Ash, plays slightly differently, has these ways to attack it, uh, So, which is quite cool. Last bit of data I want to talk about before we just jump onto like, some questions and some analysis of this kind of this format we're seeing right now and, and where we might be going next with Nationals uh, this season is... Bravo is then the, the sort of next represented. Uh, pretty low, I think. You know, only three decks reaching top eight, 6% of the top eight uh, share of meta this first weekend of Nationals. I don't expect to see that change. I think Bravo, honestly, and we'll talk about it uh, sort of into the questions, but um, <clears throat> is not impressing me. And there was it was actually quite highly played at my Nationals. 
And um, I, I was thinking about why you play Bravo right now. And I think the, the options or the reasons are, are narrowing, you know, with the sort of fire decreasing and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, we saw Kano in top eight in Australia. Reiner, of course, which ended up winning in Malaysia. Um, what else did we see? We saw Alexi make One top Lexi. eight. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and that, that's it. No Bolton, no Livia, no Azalea, no Katsu in this first week. Uh, so Bolton stands. We'll have to wait another week. Bolton stands, yeah. Bolton into a control-based or even like a meta where Icelander exists. Like, oof. Yeah, that's going to be a tough one for, for the Bolton boys. It's the disruptive effects, honestly. Like, I, I think about Bolton, I go, oh, man, like a combo deck that just like smacks damage is probably really good right now. And then you think about all the ways you can disrupt it in, in this meta. Uh, you know, hy- hypothermia from Arsenal. <laughs> Things like this, you know, it's... Uh, Insidious chill, lose your entire hand when you pop all of your combo pieces. It's like it's it's yeah. it's got it's got to be hilariously bad into Icelander, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even into I, I think even into some of the other decks in format, Command and Conquer is still around, although fading a little bit. But there's there's other disruptive elements, right? So, um, yeah, interesting. I want to jump to I guess I kind of went through a little bit of analysis, Brendan, and some some questions. So I kind of asked you this this first one already, but was just about. Is this kind of the meta you expected to see and, and why, why not? I think you talked about it a little bit already, but any expansion now that we've kind of talked through the representation of, of week one in total? This is the meta I expected to see. Um, the thing I'm most interested to see moving forward is whether Oldham will maintain that number one spot. Uh, I think the Oldham deck is, like we talked about, it, it's it's the one we, we had sort of uh, predicted to be where it is right now because... I think fundamentally it's the most powerful, right? When you just look at the what it has available to it and some of these cards like Crown of Seeds, but also just like the raw numbers of how much damage that, that deck can prevent. Um, and the more aggressive builds, right? You've seen it switch, which is interesting because I see it, it feels like Ultim is kind of torn between two game plans right now, torn between two archetypes, which probably makes the deck significantly weaker than if it was specializing in one. So if it can't target the meta by specializing as the pure control deck and you know as a pure aggro deck or pure aggressive and disruptive deck that's utilizing pummels, maybe it's just strictly worse than Bravo. I wonder if it will maintain that number one spot. Um, and I do think that decks like Icelander can play on Oldham. Um, so that's what I have my eye on, and I do expect it to actually uh, fall in, in uh, sort of win percentage here. Yeah, so I guess, actually, let's jump into that first. Is ultimate control deck? I, I I don't think it is. I think you you can't. And what we're seeing in this meta, you look at. I just went through the top eight decks and uh, even the winning list in, in Australia, the winning list in France. It's so much more proactive than we've seen in the past, and seeing more success because of it. And honestly, that's because, in my eyes, what you're doing as ultimate is you have this ability to play really efficient attacks. So your your damage, your red cards, right? They come in for above rate. Uh, they can also have things like dominate potentially. You know, think about like Red Macho Grande, but like Red Thunderquake is like a super interesting card. Um, and then the other piece as well is that you pair that with just good defensive ability. So uh, Ram's Head, Stalagmite, Crown of Seeds, but that doesn't mean that has to be your only game plan, right? Ultima is super flexible, which is really crazy. Like you actually have the ability to also go wide, you know, with cards like Zealous Belting, with E-Strikes, um, mm. with, you know, things into Sledge of Anvilheim. Like you, you have this game plan that's really interesting. Plus you have the ability to have a disruptive game plan and a tempo game plan. So Ultima kind of can do it all. And I think the decks that are seeing success right now are the decks that do more uh, proactive things than they have in the past, which is um, which is super interesting. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's kind of in line with what I mentioned. My question is just like Ultim being, you know, switching over to this uh, 
more of a mid-range archetype, right? Defends mm-hmm. well, but also attacks well. Uh, is it going to maintain that number one spot, or will it be usurped by you know one of these other decks that are following close behind? Yeah, in theory, right? If you move more towards the middle, decks that go extreme mm-hmm. one way or the other should be able to take advantage of that, right? So, in theory, you know, a deck like uh, Dramai, like if you're not aggressive enough, then in theory, Dramai should be able to take advantage of that, right? Uh, Icelander, likewise, you know, if you're not aggressive enough to pressure the frost, the frost hex. Uh, abilities of the deck you know is is that good enough and and likewise on the reverse side of that you know if you're not defensive enough you know you can't deal with these really strong channel mount heroic turns and uh, this ability like if you can't disrupt that deck enough and you can't be defensive enough and you're stuck in the middle do you become weak to that as well so yeah i'm really interested to see how people respond to what we're seeing ultim do um or is it just is it just a case that actually we're wrong and ultim is just too efficient and just too too slightly too good on all these axes that it kind of doesn't matter uh, too consistent. Exactly. That that would be the answer, right? Like, if it can maintain the number one spot while being a deck that both attacks and defends, it's probably just because its cards are just overrate across the board. Yeah, consistent. It's just the best deck, right? Yeah. <sighs> Crown of Seeds and the two shields are very, very good. Um, want to talk at next the decline of Viscera and Briar. Uh, so, of course, Briar wins. Pro Tour Lil is half the top eight, is the deck of the event. Uh, we also see Viscera, you know, still doing well. Yet we come into nationals right now and we, we see, you know, somewhat of a representative drop off of Briar in these top eights, but definitely a drop off in conversion. That's a bit more anecdotal, but I know at, at my nationals, uh, about 20% of the field was Viscerae, 15% was Briar, and in the end, no Briar in top eight, uh, one Viscerae in the end uh, in, in our top eight in Australia. Like, And we see it across, you know, the board, a real drop off in, in Briar top eights. Like, is, why? Basically, why is this happening? Mm. Good question. Um, I asked the same thing on Twitter because, like, I could be, of course, we could be wrong, but I still think that Briar is the best deck. Um, it's still doing the same thing. It's still pretty busted. But uh, I remember D Rude responded to uh, my tweet asking about this, and he said that it was because of inclusions of cards like Hypothermia and Oldham that might be swinging that matchup a bit. But I still, like, really, the Briar deck that won the PT is still here, right? And some of the other Briar decks that are floating mm-hmm. around, even the one that you played, Hayden, still around, still doing the same thing. So, I don't know. I, I can see Briar kind of resurging to the number <laughs> one spot here. It, it's obviously a 15%. It's, it's kind of teetering there. It's maybe a small enough sample size. People sort of reacting a bit too strongly to the Columbus results, you know, maybe swinging into that control meta, um, because it is more exciting or it is like the flavor of the month at this point. I, I still think that Briar fundamentally might just be the most powerful deck in the game and might uh, might come back to number one here. Viscerai, on the other hand, I don't think so. I think the Viscerai is uh, a worse Briar. Like, I genuinely think on almost every front, it's worse than Briar. Viscerai is like a deck that has like... Um you know, you can play these three card hands, right? And that's really good. And sometimes you just brick and, and it, you know, it's not super consistent, even though I think people like to think it is super consistent. It has consistency issues. Uh, but then it does this thing with like three cards. It's above rate. But you've got decks like Ultim that are playing in that space right now. And, and without a kind of spike ability that we've seen with previous uh, Viscera builds, I just don't, I agree. I just don't think it's it's a key player in this meta right now. Briar, on the other hand, I want to talk about this because I did play Briar at, my nationals, I played it at Pro Tour Lille. The big part of playing it at nationals was honestly just time. Didn't have time to sit down and test. But I've, I've thought about this over the last few days since since nationals. And if I ran it back, I, I would I would play Briar again. Like it's, I think the list in particular that, that we had and, and there'll be a deck tech coming out in the next week, um, I felt really good about it. The What I think is kind of happening with Briar right now is that there's cannibalization within these aggro decks. Like 
I played six aggro mirrors at my nationals. I think I played six aggro mirrors or five in Lille. And you know what? It, it really doesn't feel like you get to play a lot of flesh and blood in those games. Um, decisions don't, you know, there's not a lot of play, unfortunately. And you can give yourself some edge, but you can't give yourself that big an edge. Like you can't really get yourself to, you know, two good players sit down on, you know, aggro decks. It's really hard to get above 60% into those matchups unfortunately you know mm. you can give yourself a slight edge but giving yourself a big edge is i think almost impossible right now um but i do think you can give yourself edges into decks like icelander i think you can give yourself edges into decks like ultim uh so i do think that a bit of the cannibalization is, is, is like, uh, what's happening is aggro cannibalization in those uh the other piece as well is that i think with a wider sort of meta of decks that can actually uh, have plans against Briar. So you talk about Hypothermia, Alton, you talk about, you know, Icelander. I think those require two different strategies, right? So can players fit both those strategies into their AD cards? Are they prepared for those? Uh, I think that's where we're seeing Briar right now. I really do expect Briar to perform a lot better towards the back end of this Nationals because I, I agree with you. I still think it's like fundamentally very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's some tech in Briar that you can play. Uh, I gotta give a shout out to Zach Bunn here. He spilled the beans at Pro Tour, but Crown of Seeds in Briar uh, against things like Icelander and Icelexi is so freaking strong. Like, it's so good. <laughs> and I think that as people add that single card into the list more, like, that will drastically shore up the Icelander matchup or just give it a lot more percentage yeah. in favor of Briar. Unfortunately, I didn't get to play any Icelanders at my my nationals. I was feeling good about that matchup, uh, thanks to Brendan and Sasha giving me some last minute testing, uh, and you know got to get some reps. And I felt pretty pretty good about the matchup actually, and I really enjoyed the matchup as well. So not only did I want to play it from an enjoyability standpoint, but uh, also was preferring to see that over aggro mirrors. But yeah, definitely, I think there's ways to to look at these. I think the thing is is that we've seen people go to the drawing board with Ultim, with Jermaine and Icelander, and think about like how to attack the perceived meta. I do honestly feel like the Briar decks I've seen the last few weeks, people just running back the same lists. And I mean, I was somewhat guilty of that. So I think we'll see some some change and, and some people looking at, at what Briar can do. And probably Viscerai as well, although I agree with you. I think Briar is probably the, the go-to right now. Um, is it is this the return of Dorinthia? Is this the return to Dorinthia? I think mm-hmm. so, actually. Um, I think Dorinthia is good in this meta. I think that Dorinthia is a deck that comes into a meta, performs well, uh, then starts to perform better and then progressively starts to perform worse as people relearn how to play against it um, and, you know, God forbid, actually tech against it as well. So de- well, Return of Dorinthia? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> return of Dorinthia? Yes. Uh, but will it be... Do I ever foresee it being the number one deck in this format? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I think the the kind of strength of Dorinthia right now is... We talked about a big one is that People do not know how to play against it. People do not know what cards to play around. People do not know how to defend, do not know how to uh, stop themselves from getting absolutely punished uh, by certain cards. Seeing Steelblade is forever going to be a card that uh, I see people misplay into. Unfortunately, misblock into, misunderstand, break points and things like that. Um, I think people will obviously get better as they get to put reps into it. Glistening Steelblade is a ridiculous card. And I think that single-handedly, that printing of that card in the uh, Classic Battles has put more power into the deck put more powerful turns into the deck and then the the other card i want to talk about is humble sharp eye having now played against that card and seen just the threat that card has you like playing against it when you're playing a deck that you know can reliably hit a card that's going to impact that turn you know by giving go again or giving a boost to the attack or allowing them to potentially go even wider is uh is really scary and i think the other piece of it is like seeing twinning blade 
be utilized in, a, in an even that card is so scary like now oh, you have yeah. Dorinthia on a, a, a standpoint of like you can be damned if you do damned if you don't uh, mm-hmm. which is, is pretty crazy yep we had a little bit of that in the past um, with things like Spoils of War Command and Conquer mm-hmm. or like you know also Twinning Blade Glints like <laughs> it was a lot harder to pull off but we had that uh, the thing about like the th- funny thing about Dorinthia what was I going to say Oh, I, I totally lost it. It was on the tip of my tongue, Hayden. That's um, right. But, oh, yeah. I was going to say Helm of the Shark Eye. It yeah. would go so well with that that card from Crucible. What's it called? Uh, Unified. Unified Decree. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> I, that Unified, I've seen Unified Decree in these builds, and I, I'm I'm finally going to be proven correct, Brendan, about how good Unified Decree is. So. Yeah, definitely. Here we go. You've also got access to more cards. Like, you've got Run Through. You've got mm-hmm. um, the one, the blue card that gives Go Again from uh, the Classic Battles. I've forgotten the name of it. But, you know, you've got these more more cards that can play into this archetype as well, which is which is super cool. Um, I want to ask you about Dromai because you've played a bit of Dromai. I still haven't played a lot of it. What is Dromai's role in this meta and exactly how good is this hero? What are, what actually are its bad matchups and good matchups is, is the question I want to know. Um, so Jeremiah, I think that it has a bad matchup potentially. Let does, me does it pray on Is I guess a good question. Does it pray on Oldham? I don't know. I haven't played the Oldham matchup, so I honestly <laughs> couldn't say. Yeah. I haven't played too much Jeremiah. I've just been surprised at how much I've been able to just run over some of my opponents. Like literally play out my hand and run over my opponents. Um, I've been surprised at the deck's ability to do that. Um, it can obviously fatigue things like Dash as well. Uh, Dash has a particularly bad matchup into it, from what I understand. Uh, and I was surprised, just I was mostly surprised, just like fu- you know, it's in line with me just dumping my hand and running over my opponents. But just how fundamentally powerful that deck was. Like uh, it seems like a deck that at least Alyssa I was playing didn't seem like it was a hundred percent tuned. Like I didn't feel like I was playing an optimal version. Um, but at the same time, like I went in with. Very little knowledge of how to play that deck. I watched the deck tech from on Mansant's channel. I'm sorry, I forget the player's name that he was doing a deck tech with. I watched that deck tech and you know, a few tips on there, and I was able to absolutely dominate the mirror because of things like uh, uh, Asphali and Necria pinging and uh, pinging to get Ash. You know, a big Ash economy in that mirror, but outside of that, just absolutely steamrolling some of my opponents by just playing out my hands, which. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a good sign. Cadaver's contraband. <laughs> good. Anyone? Cadaver's contraband. I didn't have that one on my list. No. <laughs> I saw that. My nationals thought it was juicy. Okay. Yeah. Jeremiah is interesting to me. I think the, obviously fundamentally more powerful than maybe I thought. And um, I'm interested to see kind of where that plays into this meta. Uh, I've watched some Jeremiah players playing at my nationals. Players that I think are, are good players in, in my country, but picking up and playing this deck. And um, yeah, I, I think it's. It's a harder hero to play, I think. Like you were talking about, just the fundamental power of it, and you can just run people over. I agree, but then there's like there's a lot of nuance. Like the mirror, I think, is quite interesting. Playing against Guardian seems quite interesting, and playing against Briar in particular is quite interesting to me because I don't think that's a good matchup. But I was watching a player at my nationals play into Briar and and uh, having a pretty good time, just playing really tight with some interesting lines. So yeah, interesting to see where Jeremiah goes from here. Um, Icelander, I want to ask you know, is this just a hero that? praise on unprepared heroes or is it actually the real deal like I, I think about the matchup into Ultim and I think about people I watch people not playing Heart of Ice for instance in their matchup you know like is up Crown of Seeds we just talked about are prepared heroes going to have a pretty good time into Icelander or is actually Icelander the real deal I think it's the real deal uh, Crown of Seeds in Briar does seem a bit problematic like I think that swings the matchup into a Briar <laughs> Briar favored uh, I'm not sure though like that's that's a hard if we want to talk about hard decks to play I think that that's like a a pretty freaking hard deck to play it's got quite a quite a quite a ceiling on it in terms of skill yeah. um 
at the same time, like I think like Insidious Chill is just kind of busted. Like, yeah. Especially in these like mid-range aggro decks, like you drop double Insidious Chill or something like that, or you know, in relative succession of each other, they pretty much don't get to play the game. Like you just absolutely take away their entire hand and whittle them down to a small enough light total where they just like once your Insidious Chills are gone, they kind of just lose. That being said, landing that card in you know at all in a game as a single or in a in doubles in something like an aggro matchup. Kind of high variance, but at the same Same time, like I think that, yeah, Aether Ice Vein, super powerful card. Like I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And then you had the fact that you can flex easily flex into this anti control uh, game plan. I don't know. Seems it seems. I think it's the truth. I think Iceland is the truth. Um, Is it the best deck in the format? I I don't know. Uh, I think it does have some some pretty bad matchups, but um, outside of that, yeah, it's the truth to answer your question. That's good. Okay. Okay. Uh, Fi, you know, we've, we've seen Fi just continue to drop and drop and drop since the banning of Stubby Hammers. Uh, pretty reasonable representation at, at, um, at the PT. You know, we, we saw it, but not to great success. What is kind of Fi's place in the metagame right now? Like, is it just an aggro deck that, for instance, is this like, if Dramai rises, is like Fi the counter to Dramai is a, a highly, is like a six belittle Fi, like, a way to really target Icelander. You know, what is like, what is Fi's kind of role in this metagame now? Yeah, this is the one that, I mean, I know I personally don't really have the answer on it. I've only played against Fi, uh, been mostly playing against it as Wizard. And yeah, I mean, to me, it looks, it has looked a bit unimpressive. It's, it looks fat, it looks faster than Briar in the sense, like, if Briar doesn't draw a chain of Mount Heroics, I think that Fi ends up being kind of a faster aggro yeah, deck. But, for sure. you know, Briar does occasionally draw a chain of Mount Heroics. And then, <laughs> does it? I wouldn't know. It does, then, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then it does Briar things. So it, it's in a weird spot for me where it's... Um, I feel like if I'm going to pick, like, that archetype in this meta, you're presented with the question of, you know, Briar, Viscerai, or Fi, and it does seem to point overwhelming towards Briar for me. Mm. Let me add a fourth deck into that for you in the form of Dash, because obviously we saw Dash, a very, very aggressive Dash take out Singapore. Uh, and then these more kind of mid-range, like not mid-range, but like a Dash that can change up its plan, uh, play in in Lille and top eight in Lille. Uh, top, eight the P, uh, top eight my nationals I saw as well as uh, other national championships. So Dash can be a super aggressive deck. And to be honest, Dash can put out like 50 plus damage in the first three turns with Tickler Pounder and, you know, maximum velocity, high octane turns. Like it is a, it is a very powerful deck. Um, but then can also flex into these Guardian plans. I think the problem that Dash has in this format is that you can only run 80 cards. If you could run 85, 86 cards, I think you have the best deck in the format, to be honest. Yeah, I've been pretty unimpressed with it. Um, I've also just seen a lot of complaining about the dash side of the matchup against Jermai in particular. Like a lot of people saying yeah. it's borderline and winnable. But Funny. I think that dash really, honestly, I felt like dash was kind of preying on people that didn't know that they could fatigue it at the PT. Like I watched some Dorinthias. I, I literally watched the Dorinthia. The, it was one of Nick Butcher's game. Did not try to block Nick out when Nick hadn't, you know, pre sideboarded for a. For a like a control or anything like that, just, just aggroed him down and like Dorinthia with a fridge and every single card blocked for three. It's like I don't even think that the opposing player had the idea of fatiguing fatiguing mm. Nick during that game. And I think that as people more kind of default on fatigue um, as a general game plan against Dash, it's not that it sort of disables the deck, but it makes the deck a lot harder to play as the Dash pilot because now you have to be prepared for that and sort of hedge for that game plan against everything. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you do. You do have to. And I actually watched a winning in for Australian Nationals between a Dash and a Dorinthia and the Dash having to hedge for that, right? Playing, starting with mm-hmm. Teclo, um, sorry, with Induction Chamber with that Teclo Plasma Pistol. And that game just being a lot harder because of that. Because, yeah, you can, like, say Dorinthia, right? It's like, cool, okay, I can run these defense reactions. But it's like, actually, do I have enough space to be playing all these defense reactions? Like, my problem with heading into Pro Tour Lille is that, well, as Pro Tour, sorry, New Jersey, is that I, I was pretty high on Dash, but you couldn't really, I felt like you couldn't have both this really controlling plan and this really aggressive plan because you don't have enough cards you've one of them's got to be sacrificed a little bit and you have to decide in which way is it like okay my ceiling on my damage on my aggressive plans gets sacrificed a little bit i'm a little more susceptible to fatigue or i've got to sacrifice you know some number of removables or something like that it is really tough so um dash is interesting for me i think we can continue to see it to put up results uh i just feel like in its current form it's going to struggle to be the best deck in the format. Although I do think it's a really good choice still. Like I, I wouldn't fault people for choosing to play Dash and it was on one of my considerations. But at the end of the day, I just feel there's just slightly too many things that I can't can't do with Dash right now. And people know how to play against it more. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I mean, even, even calling back to decks like Chain, which I think was a fundamentally much more powerful deck, like Chain became a much harder deck to play when you actually had to hedge into everything. Like mm-hmm. in the early days, you would only have to hedge into things like Bravo. Um, and I guess like prison. Yeah. And like Katsu, right? Katsu was like the big question mark. But then you had to start hedging into freaking everything because Rhino. Uh, Durant, Durant, <laughs> yeah, Dorinthias and Rhinars would fatigue you. And it's not that I think that you were still a better deck than them, but it made it so much freaking harder. And it gave you such, like such a, your deck was, had so much more glut in it that it had yeah. you know, more chance to just put out crap damage in the first like, you know, three, four shackles. And then you had a lot more work to do in the late game. So, you know, I'm sure Dash is kind of going through the same sort of process process here where people have now realized that this fatigue game plan is a choice and you start seeing decks that aren't built to fatigue decks fatigue you well we know the answer uh luke badger would say cognition nodes so the oh, you're just going to spoil the world's deck like that yeah sorry or sorry luke. i just keep going with my hat wasn't i um a couple more things bravo just a worse ultim now i mean dominic seems pretty irrelevant with uh fi you know dwindling in the format it seems like what is most relevant is proactivity damage and an ability to defend better on your off turns which bravo doesn't do as well as ultim i would rather play into old him as briar than that's bravo true any, Me too. any day of the week so i think if if briar resurges to be the number one deck like i think it will be maybe bravo has a place there um I assume the Bravo matchup into into old him is pretty bad for Bravo, yeah. uh, and I, I just I I'm not super well versed on Bravo's entire matchup spread, but I do believe that Bravo into Briar and Bravo into Fi and even Bravo into Viserai pretty good matchup for Bravo. Uh, uh, the least of those being Viserai. Yeah, yeah, Viserai. I, as a Viserai player, I'd rather play against the Bravo. To be honest, I think it's a good matchup. I think the Ultim and the way we're seeing iterations of Ultim right now is not a particularly good matchup. And I think the old iterations of, of Ultim, you know, with people being more proactive is actually worse for um, worse for Fire than what we saw previously. I think trying to f- fatigue them is, is not good. Uh, Briar, I think it's around the same. I think turns where they, you know, they find a natural oak and old or they find a good pummel when you're kind of on and off turn. Those are tough, but, I, you know, otherwise I feel pretty good in that matchup. Uh, and if they try and fatigue you, I feel really good in that matchup as uh, as Briar. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, we t- I talked about this one already. Is it Reinar's time? Uh, I don't know. I want to get in and play a bit more Reinar if I can over the next couple of weeks. I'm 
My problem with Reinar is is really just like power output and any turns to try and put out power where they don't involve Bodosh Bellows uh, or this yeah, kind consistency of consistency too. Yeah, it's it's really tough. So, I mean, you can you can be consistent. You can consistently swing the club and defend for nine. <laughs> consistently do uh, subpar damage. Yeah, the Bloodrush Bell turns are really like that's Reinar's one of those decks that I really I really feel like you you really you need to draw that freaking card. <laughs> yeah. A little bit like Chinaman Heroic, maybe. But uh, I guess you also have other cards in that deck and, and uh, better yeah. off-turns uh, from an aggressive standpoint, anyway. Uh, last one. Lexi has disappeared, but could a solved meta see a resurgence of Lexi heading into the end of Nationals and the World Championship? Maybe. Um, like I said, I think that Briar with Crown of Seeds, much better into Lexi. Commander Conquerors. If they exit most decks, then it's probably pretty good for Lexi. Um Lexi playing into an aggressive ultim meta might be pretty tough, eh? Um, but again, Lexi's not super, not really my specialty, and I'm not very well versed on the entire matchup spread as we start to see new decks enter the top, you know, five of this uh, this meta. Yeah, Lexi has a massive card pool, you know. Um, yeah, I got exposed the elements by freaking Lexi while I was playing Kano the other day. I was like, oh. <laughs> What is that going to do? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it does. It has a massive couple. But I think, and it's, this is kind of something I've heard from, you know, Lexi Mains and, and Lexi Aficionados is that um, a, a, a solve meta, a more narrow meta is so much easier for Lexi because of, you know, the fact that the way you build that hero and the way you play your game plans, like the cards you have to play to change that is like quite substantial uh, because of, you know, things like ice fuse elements. And um, so composition really has to change. So in a wider meta, that's really tough. Whereas in a narrow meta where you know what to target, like, my understanding is that the Lexi versus Ultimate matchup traditionally in most builds is, is terrible for Lexi, but there are builds that Lexi can you know, utilize to, to target Ultim, but they come at the expense of aggro matchups. They come at the expense of other, you know, other things. So uh, a narrow meta is, is definitely better for Lexi. So we'll, we'll see. Jury's out on that one. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of going to do it for you know this kind of first look at this new prismless meta of course we had columbus but now we've seen some real data start to come through with the national season fully underway of course we've got a lot of marquee nationals coming up over the next few weeks uh canadian nationals is happening this coming weekend we're going to see of course the penultimate with u.s nationals uh new zealand nationals uh coming the following week so there's a lot more to happen and um i'm going to continue to you know keep track of this data brandon we'll touch base on this over the next two weeks i think even if it's not the sort of the main thing we focus on but really did want to dive into some of these big sort of questions around what the meta could look like. Last thing I want to ask you, Brendan, is if you were going to a national championship this weekend or next, what would you play? Why? Hmm. Put you on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, so this this weekend or next, it is tough. Well, it is tough because um, it it really depends on reps, I think, to an extent. I would probably default to Briar. Um like, like I said, I mean, I can't just sit here and preach that I think it's the best deck in the format and then have what I think is the best list and then also have amazing data on the other lists that were played as well, access to that and the ability to tweak said list to make it even better potentially and then not play it. Um, but I'm kind of over it, man. Like I'm kind of over playing freaking Briar into an aggressive, in, format, into an aggro format. It sucks. Like it's not fun. You don't have a lot of agency and it, 
like you can get edge, but I think a lot of that edge was in deck building and that's kind of gone because like a lot of people will be playing some of those cards that I perceive as better and the cards that sort of rose to the top in the pro tour. Um, I have no desire to, to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, while I do think the Briar's the best deck, I don't know if I'd play it. If I could get enough reps on Icelander, I might play that. I find that deck to be very fun. Um, and then, you know, maybe honestly, honestly, maybe Kano because it's kind of the only deck I, I, legitimately it brings me joy pretty much every time i play it even if all these uh these freaking losers on talishar keep oasis from fighting me (laughs) (laughs) all right there you have it i I think i'm pretty similar to be honest it's like i didn't enjoy a lot of my constructed matches at nationals uh and in in fact the the pt these aggro mirrors i feel the same boat as you like decisions felt kind of irrelevant in a lot of those matchups agency was not there but i still felt like i had one of the most powerful decks in the room so it's tough right like it does feel you can't look back and go oh you know because of my pairings i didn't want to play this deck it's like yeah but what if you you know if you got a representative pairing of the meta like and what's in your the top tables how do you feel like i'm sitting down at my match and i'm playing like you know i'm playing it's like dorinthia in round 10 or whatever it is and i look to the left of me and it's like an icelander mirror and i look to the left of that it's like a draw my mirror <laughs> you know it's like there are these decks at the top tables it's not like it, it was an aggro meta so i think it's hard to just be like oh based on the matches i had i should have played something else you've, you've really got to take the meta into account um and you know sometimes the match that you play unfortunately is like you know, is what it is yeah like in the pro tour my losses were to kano and icelexi <laughs> okay <laughs> i mean what i mean there's to take anything away from that and be like, I should have played a different deck is like so freaking results oriented that exactly you can't even be entertained, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's gonna mostly do it. We're gonna head into. I do have a Google review prepared for us, Brendan. Uh, one of my favorites. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take us into the Google review. If you do want to get your Google review in, uh, you can do so. Go to rate this or any. We we call it the Google review, but you can rate us on any uh, any platform. It's just that these rank highly for us on certain things like SEO and stuff on Google. So we love to see it. It helps us out a lot. So we appreciate it. Um, you go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass. We'll take you to your preferred listening platform and you can drop us a review on there this one is an apple pod five-star review for us here brendan and it's a uh, a cheeky little limerick coming straight out of new zealand from <laughs> new zealand's very own james gilchrist uh he actually hit me up about this because he submitted this a while ago and uh, i think brendan buried this one in the in the pile and uh, i was with him on singapore in singapore after the calling and he said you know i submitted a review and uh, it's never been read on the pod so here we go there was once a man named patrick whose heuristics came fast and thick. If you follow him, you'll catch him lose his next feature match at the Pro Tour. He made it a hat-trick. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I did legitimately miss it. But uh, I can say, I can make a promise to James because obviously the, that Pro Tour has happened and I did lose my feature match. <laughs> uh, but at the World Championships, uh, I, I, will not, I promise I will not lose a match on stream. If I do, I will retire from flesh and blood. Guaranteed, no loss. You heard it here. If, if he loses a match on stream, Brendan is retiring from flesh and blood. Well, I at hope the that... worlds, at worlds, at, at worlds. worlds. Okay, Only okay. to one tournament. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't happen. All right, Brendan, it's going to do okay. it for us this week. First deep dive into a prismless meta. Uh, if you do want to get involved with us on Twitter, we are over there at Brendan. APG, I am at Fian underscore Dale. Almost forgot our handles there for a second, Brendan. Uh, get involved in the Twitter discourse. You can see Brendan posting all of his screenshots of his uh, games over on Telashire, and you can hear me uh, just giving tournament updates about how I'm losing. Uh, 
<laughs> we'll be over there though. Of course, if you uh, haven't checked out the Arsenal Pass YouTube channel, please do so. Go and check out some of the videos we've got coming up this week next. And of course, the, uh, the vlog's already up there. Patreon, if you do want to join Patreon, you can find the link down below on YouTube and on your podcast service. Until next week, Brendan, see you then. See you, everybody.